the end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, in the larger scheme of things, in chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul is still addressing the conflict that the Thessalonians are enduring. We remember a little bit of the story itself, Paul and Timothy and Silas and their team They show up, they establish a church, but because of the opposition, they're forced out of town. And and Paul longs to see them again and sends back part of his missionary team. And and part of what he hears he's dealing with in chapters 2 and 3. The opponents of the church, we learned in chapter 2, wanted to separate the Thessalonian Christians from the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It had done magnificent things in their lives, was transforming them, giving them strength and courage, and the opponents wanted to separate Christians from the gospel. They also wanted to separate those young Thessalonian Christians from Paul and his team, so they began to spread rumors about what Paul and his team were like when they were actually there. Now, as we continue in that kind of larger picture of these two chapters, it turns out that even more than all of that, those who brought conflict into the church, who were trying to make faith difficult for the young Thessalonian Christians, were also trying to separate them from something else that Paul found critical to their lives, and that is the family of God. They had been trying to separate the Thessalonians from the gospel of God, as Paul puts it in chapter 2, and now we learn that they're trying to separate the people of God, they're trying to separate Christians from the people of God. So as we read through our passage this morning, we're going to read Paul talk about several different kinds of things. So first of all, we're going to see this. Paul desperately wants to see the Thessalonian Christians face to face. He writes this letter to them, and we see this love, we see this thanksgiving. We recognize that this letter is an intensely personal letter, as Paul sort of pours himself out in his love for the Thessalonians. So he writes to express his love, to express guidance for these young Christians, but he also expresses several times over his desire to see them again face to face. A letter is going to do some things for him, but Paul says it's absolutely not a substitute for the physical presence and friendship of other Christians. And as we wrestle with what Paul has to say there, I wonder if we Christians in our culture are voluntarily tending to give up what Paul finds so critical for the church, this face-to-face relationship with each other. We're also going to read this. Paul wants to know that they're growing in their faith even through their trials. It was so bad, Paul and his team had to leave, and the Thessalonian Christians continue to endure. We're going to learn that Paul actually taught them that trials for their faith were inevitable, but then there is growth and strength and encouragement that's possible because of all of that. We're also going to read that Paul is thankful again. He's thankful that he hears good news about them, that they're growing in their faith and in their love. This theme of thanksgiving shows up over and over throughout this book in what he hears about the Christians in Thessalonica. And then to end our passage this morning, Paul is going to pray for them, and he's going to pray for their holiness. It turns out that the Thessalonians are on their way to see God. Are they ready? This is important. So they're on their way to see God. He wants to make sure that they're ready. Friends, you and I are on our way to see God. Are we ready? 
This is important for Paul in this passage of Scripture. So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, here's some of what he has to say. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we were physically removed from you, but spiritually we were still near you. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. This apostle's heart, this pastor's heart, this continues to be revealed and poured out for us as he writes to this young group of Christians. He says, but look, since we have been torn away from you, brothers, it's been just a little while, and we were torn away from you physically and not spiritually. This opposition in Thessalonica was severe enough to move Paul and his team along. And in fact, we learn when we read the story itself in Acts chapter 17 that they actually threw a man named Jason into prison. Jason had opened his home for this brand new church. They had nowhere else to meet, so this is where they started to meet. And the opposition thought, well, if we squash Jason, maybe we can disperse the church. So they pick up Jason and they throw him in jail and he gets out on bail and it turns out that uh, the uh, church has not been squashed at all. Even though Paul and his team had been forced out, chased all the way to Berea, Athens, and then eventually to Corinth as well. But the scenario itself and the violence of that scenario made Paul want to go back and see them more and more. It created in him, we hear, this intense desire to get back and physically see them and encourage them and be encouraged by them. The phrase that he uses when he says, but since we were torn away from you, that phrase torn away from you is this cool long Greek word that means to be orphaned. He says, it's as if a family has been torn to pieces when we had to leave you. You may remember some of the images that Paul used in chapter 2 when he was talking about uh, his time with the Thessalonians. He says, as a mother weaning her child, we were with you. Then he says later on, like a father with his children, we were there with you, teaching you how to walk in this brand new way of life. This really is an intense personal family relationship that Paul has with this church. Now, we can even ask the question, Paul wants to get back to see the Thessalonians. Does he get a chance to do that? Well, as you read through the rest of Paul's life in the book of Acts, it looks like he does. So if you go back into Acts chapter 20, the first six verses, he gets to make one more swing through these Macedonian churches, Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. So it appears that God grants him another opportunity to actually see this church that he loved so much. But as Paul is thinking about this opposition in this young church and his relationship to them, why is it that Paul is so concerned that he physically see them again? He's going to bring this up even more in chapter 3. There are at least a couple of reasons for us to pay attention to here. First of all, Paul really is worried that his absence is going to be used against him. He's not there. Those who are opposing his message in the church, they've come and they've lied about how Paul and his team were there and how they behaved and what they taught. So he's worried that his absence is going to be used against him. While he's gone, this gossip is beginning to spread. People are no longer trusting 
what they had heard from Paul, what they had seen in Paul and Timothy and Silas. So he wants to go back, and he wants to rebuild that foundation. And there's nothing amazing or unique there because we know that this is just what happens in relationships. When we're not face-to-face, it's easy for misunderstandings to arise. When communication is cut off or communication is intermittent or we're unable to touch base with each other, misunderstandings can arise. And so Paul wants to get back there. He wants to make sure they know how much he loves them and Timothy and Silas and, and Luke and those who are with him. So he's worried his absence is going to be used against him. But then as well, and this gets developed through our passage, I think, in some interesting ways, Paul is also convinced of the unique power of physical presence. He's convinced, I need to say that again because I think it's important for us to hear and understand and learn how to absorb. Paul is convinced of the unique power of physical presence. Face to face, brothers and sisters in Christ, next to each other, um, listening to each other sing and pray and worship and read God's word and learn what it means and talk about what it means. There's no substitute for this face to face, side by side relationship that the church has. So he says, We endeavored even more eagerly and with great desire with a lot of fervent energy and passion to see you face to face. And it's not just the Apostle Paul. We read this in other apostles as well as they're on their journeys and and their issues and they write back to the churches that they love. The Apostle John, the disciple John in, in 2 John, a very short book. In fact, maybe this is one of the reasons why it's a very short book. 2 John verse 12 says this, Though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink or Facebook or Twitter. Instead, that's, that's, it's subtly in the Greek there, I promise you, but it's there. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. He says again in an even shorter book, 3 John verse 13 I had much to write to you, but I would rather not use pen and ink. I would rather use my voice in your ears, in your voice, in my ears, in our faces, in our hands, in our lives. That's how I want to spend time with my church. This is actually a pretty big deal inside of this passage of Scripture. The physical company of the church of Jesus Christ, the physical company is a significant part of our commitment to the people of God. We may say on one level or another that we're committed to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're committed to the will of God. We're committed to what Christ wants in our lives and inside of this world. But friends, a significant part of the actual, tangible expression of our commitment to all of that is our commitment to each other in the local body of believers. This is one of the primary ways in which that actually fleshes itself out over time. Now, for Paul and his team, the particular issue that they faced is that, well, we have pen and ink, and information travels at the speed of mule, and so we're going to send this letter back to you as quickly as you can, but it's going to take a very long time, and we've been forced out because of opposition. That's the kind of 
tension that Paul and his group faced and that they want to overcome in order to get back. When you and I encounter this thought inside of Scripture, we have to think sometimes in different terms. It's not necessarily that information only travels by the speed of mule or we're not mobile anymore and we can't just get there. There are other ways in which we substitute things for the physical community of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of ways in which we do this, but this might be the most primary way in which we do. Virtual community is not a substitute for physical community. We can keep up with people. We can pray with people. We encourage people. We can yell at people politically on these things, right? This is what we do. We can post happy pictures when we're sad. We can do stuff like that. But virtual community is not a substitute for physical community. And here's just some things to think about because we're so absorbed and we're wrapped up in all of us are. If you're not, you're blessed and lucky, even myself. I mean, for Pete's sake, I've got this thing in my pocket. We're wrapped up in these things. But here's some things to think about when it comes to social media and virtual community versus what's different and special and unique in the physical presence of brothers and sisters in Christ. Virtual communities require almost no commitment. You can lay whatever level of commitment you want to into those virtual communities. You can belong to a hundred different Facebook groups and never check any of them and not care. You can pour whatever level of commitment you want to into it. But you know If you have struggled, walked through difficult times, how much effort it takes to physically show up and sit next to a Christian in church. It takes a different kind of commitment when we're going to physically be with each other. Virtual communities allow us to be in complete control of our communication, what we do and don't want to say, what we do and don't want to hear. The language inside of social media is really interesting to me. You can unfollow someone, and you stop seeing what they have to say because you're tired of seeing what they have to say. You can even unfriend someone. Have you ever actually physically unfriended someone? That's very different than touching a little button on the screen and unfriending someone. And I love this language. You can mute somebody. Now, without a show of hands, How many of you have wanted a mute button in real life? (laughs) I am so tired of this conversation, and I keep hitting the mute button, and nothing is happening. It's different when you're face-to-face. Something different is happening. Something deeper is happening. Something more profound and powerful. And sometimes things even more aggravating and cutting are happening because we are face-to-face. Virtual communities distance us from both the joys and pains of other people. They just do this distancing. And if we just don't want to engage, we can actually just not engage, just turn off the phone and off we go. We just don't open it up. We distance ourselves from the real joys and the real pains in other people's lives. You flip that coin over and a virtual community separates others from the real joys and real pains that are in your life and that are in my life. It's not a substitute for face-to-face. So we need to think in these terms. But we are not in a situation like Paul and his group are. We're in a different situation where sometimes we sit next to each other but have not actually been face-to-face. Does that make sense? Real families, the real flesh and blood family of God, 
is sometimes full of difficult, hard things to walk through over a long period of time. But sometimes real families, sometimes the real physical family of God is filled with blessing and joy and laughter as well. Because Paul loved them, he wants to be with them. He's going to write, he's going to send letters to them, but he wants to be with them. Notice what he says about the Thessalonians at the end of chapter 2. What is our hope or our joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? It's you. For you are our glory and our joy. The language of the coming of Jesus Christ and how important this is to what Paul has to say to the Thessalonians. It sort of gets introduced here, but by the time we're done with First and Second Thessalonians, we will have felt like that's almost all that we've talked about. It's what it means that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is coming back again. And he uses the language of an athlete. What is our crown? What is our hope? What is our rejoicing? As an athlete would rejoice in his or her personal victory, so Paul says, I'm going to rejoice in our victory, and our victory is you, that you guys make your way to Jesus Christ for all of eternity. This is beautiful to me. It's as if Paul is saying, I may not ever see you face to face, but I know this. When I stand face to face with Jesus Christ, we will be there. Not just me, we will be there. This is my joy. This is what I rejoice in. This to me is winning. This is the finish line. When I'm there, I'm going to see you. That's beautiful. And it's something that's going to motivate Paul, in fact, throughout the rest of our passage of Scripture. So let's go to chapter 3, verse 1. He goes on to say this, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul tells the Thessalonians, suffering is inevitable as a Christian. Keep this in mind. Paul was only with the Thessalonians for a few weeks. We can add up maybe three, four, five weeks. Paul led the salvation message with, you're going to suffer if you follow Jesus Christ. So let's do this. Let's follow Jesus Christ. And what do they do? They follow Jesus Christ. That's powerful to me. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer... Paul, and it turns out his biographer, Luke, the man who writes the book of Acts, they stay in Athens. Again, Acts chapter 17 is the story. They stay in Athens, and the rest of the team scatters, goes back to visit other churches. And Timothy heads back to Thessalonica to see how they're doing, to establish and to exhort you in the faith, 
is how Paul puts it. I want to make sure that Timothy is there so that we're still following Jesus Christ, so that he can encourage you, so that he can correct you and direct you if that is needed as well. So this church that had had this radical transformation, the power of the Holy Spirit, people are saved. The church needs continued growth in the faith. Salvation is not the last step, it is the first step. And now we have a life to live. Now we have something else to learn with every step along the way as we follow Jesus Christ. Paul is concerned, and you and I need to be concerned, Some form of a half-hearted nominal connection to the gospel of Jesus Christ just is not enough, especially when the tempter, Satan, our enemy, would love for you to have a half-hearted nominal compartmentalized connection to Jesus Christ. That there really is only kind of this one piece of my life that really has anything to do with Jesus. You know what? In my opinion, the enemy of your faith is perfectly happy with that. Paul says, we need to make sure you're moving and moving and moving and that every piece of your life gets touched by Jesus Christ. So God gives the local church all kinds of gifts that are expressed through the body of Christ, not just one, two, three, four, five, or six people, but gifts that are expressed through the entire body so that the local church can grow in faith instead of being led astray or growing cold or falling into the temptation to be disconnected from Christ. Here's part of how Paul puts that story to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain. Notice this language of we again. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, And he goes on to say things so that you and I are not blown around by all kinds of false doctrines that show up. So because God does this for the church, Paul finds a way in which he can actually send one of those gifts back to the Thessalonians. So he sends Timothy back there to make sure that Timothy can help them and encourage them and strengthen them and move along in their faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul does tell them, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this kind of thing. And he says, you know it because you have experienced it. Their affliction as Christians, the tension that they experienced because they bear the name of Jesus Christ for Paul is not an optional thing, it is an inevitable thing. Isn't that interesting? That if you're really bearing the name of Jesus Christ, there's just gonna be something else going on that wants to make that hard. The enemy wants to make it hard. The sin inside of my own life wants to make that difficult. There may even be external circumstances that want to separate me from church and from the gospel and from the people of God. All ranges of difficulty, Paul just decided, knew, learned, taught that it was inevitable. In fact, I know this is another uh, three or four verses, but I just want to keep reading this scripture to you. When Paul, at the end of his life, writes what is probably his last letter, he writes his last two letters to Timothy, the same young man who is mentioned here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. So when he writes to Timothy near the end of his life, here's part of what he has to say while he's in prison. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. 
my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We follow Jesus Christ. There are just things in life that are going to become difficult. Jesus himself says this to the disciples in John chapter 16. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. The world is going to lose, and I'm going to win. Right? I'm greater than this world. They're going to throw everything they have at some of you, And they're going to take one thing from you that no one else thinks they can take. They're going to take their life from you. But guess what? You're going to be with me forever. I am stronger than this world and I will win. Let the world throw at you what they can. So Paul tells them, I'm worried that the tempter, he names him in chapter 2, Satan, our actual spiritual enemy. Satan is not a metaphor. Satan is not... um, an image that stands for a bad season of life or someone who makes things difficult for us. Satan is a literal, actual, spiritual being whose goal is to destroy you and me in the will of God. So I was worried that the tempter was actually going to start separating you from the gospel of Christ. You see, Satan wants to separate us from both the gospel and from the people of God. But I I like this, as we learn what the Thessalonians are like, as we even watch the church of Jesus Christ in areas in this world where it's difficult for people to follow Jesus Christ, we learn something really interesting. The more difficult our faith becomes outside the walls of the church, the more precious our time inside the walls of the church becomes. Does that make sense? Here... We can raise our hands and we can worship God. Out there, my job doesn't let me do that. Out there, my family situation makes the expression of my faith incredibly complicated and difficult. But when I come here, I can can do anything I want to with Jesus Christ. I can say anything I want to in praise and honor and glory. The more difficult that becomes, the more precious this becomes. Some of you guys are thinking, as long as he gets done before the Bronco game starts, we're good. Right? Right? This is how we tend to think. Thessalonians and other Christians think differently. This is precious to me. Paul says, this is so precious to me, I want to be there with you. Even though when we show up, we might have to show up under the cover of darkness, but I'm going to do it so I can be with you. So he's worried. He says, I was worried about you, that the tempter might have actually been succeeding in some of your lives. But verse 6, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? 
as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul's concerns are answered with good news. Timothy came back, and you guys are sticking. You, you know, go team. This is working out. <laughs> you're holding to your faith, and your love is increasing. And Paul says, you know what I really love to hear? That you wanted to see me as much as I wanted to see you. It's just beautiful. So he says that now he can live because he hears this good news. In verse 8, a paraphrase puts it like this. Knowing that your faith is alive keeps us alive. That's cool. There's comfort in knowing that brothers and sisters in Christ are holding to the faith. Paul and his companions, almost everywhere they go, face some kind of opposition, some kind of persecution. Sometimes it scoots them out of the city. Sometimes it gets them thrown in jail. Sometimes it gets them beaten within an inch of their life. And so they keep holding on to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they move with courage to the next town to tell even more people about the good news of Jesus Christ. So when they hear that the Thessalonians have not let go of the gospel, how encouraging is that going to be? And we flip that coin over, and I think we can understand how disappointing it would be to learn that others, for whatever level of opposition, have just decided to let it go. Now, that's backbreaking. That's heartbreaking. That's not what Paul heard, though, with this group of Christians. Your faith, your love, they continue to increase. So in that context, in that thanksgiving again, Paul reiterates the power of the fellowship of believers. So we want to be with you so that we encourage you, so that we can bring to you what is lacking in your faith, where you need to grow, the things that maybe are going wrong, we can bring that back to you. So it's not just that he reiterates the power of face-to-face brothers and sisters in Christ, but especially your relationship with mature believers in Jesus Christ. What is it that I still have to learn that you have to teach me? We learn that face-to-face, day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month, year-by-year. A letter's going to do a little bit, but if Paul can sit around and say, you know what, in this other city, they literally stoned me within an inch of my life. So here's what we did. We got up, we brushed the dust off of the city, and we moved on to the next. I know what's happening to you. Christ is greater. Stick. <laughs> the things that we can learn from each other when we are side by side and face by face with each other over a long period of time is powerful. It forces me, when this thing becomes important to us, it forces me to ask questions like, what is lacking in my faith? Have I made it hard to learn from others because I've disconnected myself from brothers and sisters in Christ? And in doing so, have I disconnected myself from what I can learn? Have I maybe even convinced myself that there's not much left that I have to learn from other people? Well, a commitment to being face-to-face is often a commitment to our maturity, our growth in Jesus Christ. So what Paul does as he wraps up this passage of Scripture is he prays for them. So he says that I've been praying for you night and day a couple of verses ago, but now he expresses that prayer in verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase 
and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So he prays for the church. And as he does so, notice who's doing all of the heavy lifting. Notice how he prays, what, what kind of power he wants at work inside of this church. May God bring us back to you. May God see our way back to you again. May God cause your love to increase, your love for each other, and then also your love for everybody else. Just as we love you, may God cause your love to increase, and then may God make you holy, and may God make you ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. God's doing all of the heavy lifting. These are not things that we in our power can accomplish or can attain, but these are things that in God's power can begin to happen inside of the church of Jesus Christ in powerful ways. This is, as Paul prays it, I believe, a vision of people who belong to a great and a wise God, who belong to this gospel of God, as he puts it, and who belong to the people of God, and that's significant and that is meaningful to them. Satan, their opponents in Thessalonica, have kept Paul from returning, but he says, if God desires for us to be back with you again, may God make the way open. May God cause that to happen again. Paul values their time so much that he prays openly, may God make it possible for us to see each other again. And then Paul prays, and I like this. It's not just that he tells the Thessalonians, I want you guys to grow in love for each other. That's a perfectly pastoral thing to do. But this is another pastoral thing to do, to in front of the Thessalonian church say, I want God to cause your love for each other to increase and your love for everyone else to increase as well. Loving each other, And by that, Paul means, I want you to make sure that your love for the people in the church at Thessalonica, the people who gather together to receive the Lord's Supper, to worship Jesus Christ, to pray with each other, to sit next to each other, those people, I want your love for each other to increase. Love for each other is much harder than love for everyone, okay? Love for a particular individual is far harder than saying, I just love everybody. The Beatles told us, all you need is love, right? But love for everybody, when we put it like that, love for humanity is very abstract and demands almost nothing from me. There are literally billions of people in this world. If I say I love them, it affects my day-to-day zero. It demands nothing of me. But when Jesus commands that I love my neighbor, it demands almost everything from me. This is a physical individual with their situation. And by the way, you're just as much a hot mess as they are. (laughs) And it's going to demand things of us over time to fulfill this command to love 
our neighbors as ourselves. <clears throat> God commands we love our neighbor. Um, G.K. Chesterton actually talks about this fairly often, but here's one of the things that he says about what it means for us to love our neighbor. He says, we make our friends, we make our enemies, but God makes our next door neighbor. We have to love our neighbor because he is there. A much more alarming reason for a much more serious operation. So, right, I'm asking God that he do the work inside of you, church at Thessalonica, church at Living Hope, your love for each other will increase, that we will learn how to express the love of Jesus Christ to each other. We will stumble, we will fall, we will succeed, we will be hurt, we will be blessed, but he's praying that the love of God would be at work when you guys are together. And then he says, and love all else as well, love everyone else as well. Church turns into a kind of workshop of love as we put ourselves together on a rather regular basis and we're forced to figure this stuff out from time to time. And we learn this in the name of Jesus Christ and with grace and patience and humility with each other. Then we learn to love others as well. And Jesus actually tells his disciples, the world will know that you belong to me because of your love one for another. So Paul prays that God will cause their love to increase. And then Paul prays, because this is where he's going with the Thessalonians. Paul prays that the church will become a holy people ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. God has called to himself a people. He adopts us as his children. He puts us together in the family of God, and he calls us to be holy to be people who live lives that honor Him and His will and give glory to the name of Jesus Christ. And here's what part, of Paul, part of what Paul prays, that you would be holy because that was going to make you ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. Guys, it's a piece of doctrine we're going to get to play with throughout the books of First and Second Thessalonians. You just, I knew the more and more I say this, the more I'm going to stumble over it. First and second Thessalonians. Jesus really is coming back. He really is. Are we ready for him? Now, when we in this room, including me, when we, when we think we are going to see Jesus, we often interpret that as, I am going to see Jesus. And that's true. But it's also true we are going to see Jesus. Paul says, if I never see you again the rest of my life, it gives me joy to know that when I finally see him face to face, I'm going to see you too. <laughs> so I'm going to pray that you're ready. Let's work, friends, as individuals to find ourselves ready to grow in the image, the knowledge, and the love of Jesus Christ as individuals, as, as families. But may we do this for us as well. May we pray for us as a church. May we work for us as a church that we will be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ.
Let's pray.